0: Now, some have Martin Luther as their church history hero, others have John Calvin, but I have William Tyndale. Yes, thank you, Brian. He is a man of whom much honor is due, and so I'm excited this morning to help share the life of William Tyndale with all of you. Now, this was put together for a two-part series, but I have 45 minutes, so God help me get through this this morning. So before we jump in, let's first ask God for help. Father, this morning, we thank you. We thank you for everyone that's here. Pray, Father, this morning for our church service as we gather to worship here in an hour. Pray that you would meet with us. But I ask right now, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred, that our faith would be built as we explore the life of William Tyndale. I pray, Father, you give us courage and boldness when we face persecution like this great man did. And so in your name, Jesus, we pray, amen. Well, who is William Tyndale? If you were to ask the average person on the street, maybe three out of ten would have even heard of him, and probably no one could tell you something substantial about his life. Now, the numbers in the church probably go up a bit. More people have heard of him. But again, not many know something substantial about him. So who is he? Well, the BBC released a poll in 2002 And they named Tyndale as the 26th greatest Briton of all time. Sounds pretty good. In my humble opinion, that nobody cares about, he should be in the top 10. Especially when you see who's in that top 10. People like Charles Darwin, John Lennon, and Princess Diana. Tells you much about the culture that we live in. Who is William Tyndale? He is a man who exemplified the very words he himself translated for the first time in English. The fight, the good fight of faith. Tyndale is a man of many things. A reformer, scholar, a hero to many, a pioneer, smuggler, outlaw, a refugee, a translator. And ultimately, he was a martyr. William Tyndale gave his life so that his fellow countrymen, his English countrymen, could have the Bible for the first time in their own language. But first and foremost, William Tyndale was a godly man. He's a man who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and again, paid the ultimate price. He paid blood so that the Bible could be in the English language. Now, for us today, that's kind of hard to fathom. We have English Bibles that are on our shelves, numerous ones. Last week, I ordered four csb versions for my kids two-day arrival a quick estimate in my house between printed copies and digital copies there's over 20 versions of the new testament or the bible in english so this is something that's hard for us to fathom but in william tyndale's day it was illegal to have the bible in english it was illegal to even recite scripture in english if one did it would cost you your life Let's hear what others say about William Tyndale. The historian John Fox, who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, calls him the Apostle of England. A biographer says Tyndale was the Reformation in England. An author of Banner of Truth calls William Tyndale the first of the Puritans, if not maybe the grandfather of the Puritans and the prophet of the English language. Lastly, Dr. and Pastor Stephen Lawson calls Tyndale the chief architect of the English Bible, which we will see as we explore more. Now, before we dive deep into the life of Tyndale, it's always good to get kind of the landscape or the picture uh, of the person and the life and the world that they were born into. Tyndale was born at the end uh, of the 15th century, and there was lots that was taking place at the end of the 15th century. Uh, One of the most important things you can see here is Johann Gutenberg. In 1440, he invented the printing press, forever changed world history, and would be considered one of the greatest inventions in the last 500 years. Well, the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval Roman Catholic Church, as we think of it, was filled with corruption and abuse. Not long before this, there was the Papal Schism. Three different popes among two different cities. In England, there was much religious uh, Oh, kicking my coffee, religious and political tension. England had just ended the 100 year war. The Tudor monarchy had just established itself. There was already reform happening, coming from a man named John Wycliffe, who we'll briefly touch on as we go through. And also, something very important is the fact that English the language was changing. For those of you that were here earlier in the morning, I had a slide up that showed the Lord's Prayer in Old English, Middle English, and Modern English. So when we think of the King James, often and wrongly we think of it as being Old English. Old English is not understandable to us. Beowulf would be an example of what was written in Old English. At the end of the 15th century, the language of English was becoming modern. And Tyndale was, again, one of the chief architects or the prophet of the English language, and we shall see why. Now enters William Tyndale, born in 1494 in Gloucestershire on the border of Wales to a wealthy family by the name of Hitchens. Tyndale himself often was known to go by this name, Hitchens. Now, because he was born to a wealthy family, he was able to move to Oxford and attend school at Oxford at the age of 12, It wasn't uncommon for kids at that age to go off to a preparatory grammar school. So he goes to what is known as Magden Hall, which is at Oxford. And here he begins to study. And six years later, in 1512, he receives a Bachelor's of Art. 1550, he receives his Master's, which allows him to begin studying scriptures. Now, as he studies scriptures, he realizes at the university that it's lacking He has a quote. He says, In the universities they have ordained that no man shall look on the Scripture until he is nursed in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of Scripture. So we see at this time Tyndale, though, has a love to know God's Word. Now he's studying and learning it in Latin, but he loves God's Word. And he realizes in the universities they're not teaching Scripture properly. While he is there at Oxford, he is ordained a priest. And from here, he moves to Cambridge to continue his studies. William Tyndale was a scholar, he was a linguist. By the end of his life, he knew seven languages fluently. He was a master in language. Now, at Cambridge, we're not sure exactly when he arrived, somewhere around 1517 to 1519. There are two important uh, things that associate Tyndale with Cambridge. First is the Dutch humanist and Greek scholar, Erasmus. Some of you have probably heard of Erasmus. Now, he taught Greek at Cambridge about six years before Tyndale was there. The two did not cross paths, but Erasmus' influence was heavy upon Tyndale. And one thing important here with Erasmus is, uh, and most of you probably know, he was the first to assemble some of the best-known manuscripts uh, at the time, which weren't many, maybe 10, and then published and printed the Greek New Testament. So now there was a printed Greek New Testament. And this is something that both Luther and Tyndale end up using uh, to translate the Bible into their own vernacular languages. The second important thing, Tyndale's time at Cambridge, is Luther's writings. Lutheranism, or Luther, as we know, in the Protestant Reformation, uh, really began to be a hotbed uh, uh, at Cambridge. Many of Luther's works now being printed from Germany are arriving in England, and both faculty and students are devouring uh, Luther's books. And let's see, I have a quote here. I might have to skip it because I can't find it. But essentially, this is where, yes, under this influence of Luther's works, Uh, Tyndale embraced a deep commitment to the core truths of the Protestant movement by Dr. Stephen Lawson. So these are really important aspects that begin to shape the life of William Tyndale. Now, Tyndale moves back after Cambridge to his hometown of Gloucestershire. And in Gloucestershire, he takes a job for a wealthy man by the name of Sir John Walsh. And there he serves as his secretary and chaplain for the family in addition, he tutors his children. Now, being a priest and a lover of Scripture, he begins to preach. He begins to preach in a small congregation close to where he is living. Uh, at the same time, he is really devouring the Greek New Testament now that uh, the Novum Testamentum uh, has been released. And he begins to see justification by faith alone. So Luther's writings and the Bible itself in the original language begin to shape William Tyndale to become a Protestant reformer. Now, while he's there and he's preaching, the local authorities begin to hear the reformed ideas coming from Tyndale. And the Catholic Church was not fond of reformation, as many of you know that know church history. So he's brought before uh, some of the church authorities, and he's questioned But in God's providence, he is not declared a heretic yet. He will be one day. Instead, he's questioned and told to stop speaking Reformation uh, doctrine. And at a later point, he begins to get in a debate. This is a well-known story with some, probably a priest, over uh, the Pope and the Pope's authority. Tyndale was not a fan of the Pope. And in this quote, the Catholic clergyman being upset at Tyndale says, We had better be without God's law than the Pope. Woe is correct. To which Tyndale famously replies, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. If God spare me life ere many years, I would cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than thou dost. And that is exactly what Tyndale sets out in his mission in life to accomplish. And he does. He does this very thing. Now, before we dive further, we need to stop for a moment and ask, what is the problem? Why is there this problem? What's all the fuss about, about having the Bible in one's own language, English, in our story, in context? What is the big deal? Well, we need to go back about 1,100 years prior to William Tyndale. A man by the name of Jerome was a Greek, Hebrew, and Latin scholar. Now, he was commissioned by the Pope, Pope Damascus, at this time to compile uh, a Bible, to translate the Bible into the common language of that day, which was Latin. That's right. The Roman Empire had continued to expand. Uh, the common Greek, Koine Greek, that we think of today is the, the original language of the New Testament, uh, was changing to be Latin, The irony here is that Jerome, who then translated what was known as the Latin Vulgate, which means vulgate means uh, vulgar or common, was so that the average person could have the Bible in their own language. That was the reason the Latin Vulgate was commissioned by the Pope to be done. Now, over a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church had that one translation Latin, everything was done in Latin. The Bible was in Latin, the mass was in Latin, baptisms, uh, everything was in Latin. And over a 1,000 years, when the language is only Latin for everything religious, what happens is people then to be, begin to think of the language itself as inspired instead of the very words of God themselves. So, 1,000 years later, a man by the name of John Wycliffe, not Wycliffe, but Wycliffe, is born. And Wycliffe is a, uh, orth, uh, excuse me, a, a professor at Oxford. He himself, being a priest, is also, though, a preacher. He loves to preach. And Wycliffe is a pre-reformer. He's known as the morning star of the Reformation. He's 100 years before Martin Luther, but he really is a reformer. He sees the abuse of the pope uh, he has problems and issues with transubstantiation—that Christ is really in the blood—or or excuse me, that in the, the ah, bread and the wine really becomes Christ's body and blood. His followers are known as the Lollards; probably means mumblers because they were preachers. But Wycliffe, really under his supervision, puts together an English Bible. He probably wasn't the one that did the translation. He may have assisted, but under his tutelage, he was able to assemble the Bible in English for the first time. Big difference from Tyndale, though, first, is his translation is from Latin. And the Latin was not that great. It's difficult to get a good translation when you go from uh, the original to another language to another language. Also, the Bible at this time had to be handwritten, the printing press had not yet been invented. So Bibles are big, and they're expensive, and they're hard to carry around. Okay, so two things, two laws that uh, get passed here, the beginning of the 15th century. The first in 1401, under King Henry IV and Parliament, is called De Heretico Cumbrendo, which means on the burning of heretics. So now what had happened is if you spoke against the Pope, If you denied the real presence of Christ in the Mass, you could be burnt at the stake for being a heretic. Seven years later, in 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury put into law called the Constitutions of Oxford, which outlawed the Latin Bible being translated into English. So, now it is outlawed. This is directly against the Lollards and the Wycliffe Bible. So, it's against the law to not only have but to possess a Bible or to speak in English, to speak the Scriptures in English. Essentially, what happens is the knowledge of Scripture is extinguished throughout the land of England. And Tyndale had a problem with that. He knew God's Word says, man shall not live on bread alone but by every word of God. If faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of God... How can anyone know the scriptures and be saved? Because if everything's in Latin and the common peasant knows nothing of Latin, most priests don't even know Latin, maybe a few words, how can anyone be saved? So this is what drove William Tyndale to translate the Bible into English. So from here or back in his hometown, he now leaves to London in 1523 to start his Bible project to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. So he visits a man, Bishop of London, Cuthbert Tunstall, because he needs to get his project sanctioned. 1408, Ox, uh, Constitutions of Oxford make it illegal. So he needs it to be sanctioned. Now, notice the date, 1523. 1523. What, what's happened in this era? I'll, I'll pause for a minute. We can also, if you have questions, what's, what's happened in this time period already that you may know of, of in church history? Luther has been around. Yep. 1522, I think I had a slide that showed Luther translated his Bible into German from uh, Erasmus' Greek. And there was a revolt, a peasant revolt. So between what's going on in Germany Uh, The Lollards, as I already have mentioned, there's a bit of a a revival among them in England. Tunstall realizes, not on my watch. This is not going to happen. Now, Tunstall, the reason uh, Tyndale went to Tunstall is because he was a friend of Erasmus. Tunstall was a Greek scholar himself. He thought if there ever was a man, this might be the guy that would allow me to take on this project. But Tunstall refuses, and Tyndale realizes there's no room Not here in London in my Lord's palace, and for that matter, there's no room in all of England to accomplish this work. And so at this point, 1524, William Tyndale leaves England for the rest of his life, never to set foot back in his homeland of England. And for the remaining 12 years of his life, he is a translator, and he is a fugitive, always on the move, always being hunted uh, because of his desire to have the Bible in English. Now, the first time we hear of Tyndale, well, let me back up. There is a romantic version that's probably not accurate that says when Tyndale left England, he went and spent a year in Wittenberg with Luther. Again, more of a romantic idea. It's been put forth by some historians, but most historians do not believe that that actually took place. Where we do first know uh, a Tyndale is in the sweet-smelling city of Cologne, Germany, Actually, it's on a river, so it probably smells bad. But this is where we first know of Tyndale in continental Europe. And uh, what's important here in Cologne is by this time, 1525, he has completed his translation of the New Testament from Greek into English. And here he finds a printer by the name of Peter Quintel, it's risky business at this time in Germany to have any association with Luther or what looks to be kind of in this Protestant Reformation movement. But he finds a man, because printers are often motivated by money, because they are in business for themselves, he finds a printer that is willing to take on the translation work, to get it, excuse me, the printing of his translation. Now, this Bible uh, it's actually called the Matthew Fragment. This is the first printed works of Tyndale. And what this, here's how the story goes. As the printing is getting going, uh, an anti-Lutheran, a German humanist, a devout Roman Catholic by the name of Cochleus, uncovers this uh, plan to print the New Testament. Kind of stumbles upon these English guys printing the Bible. So Tyndale thankfully gets wind of it And at the last minute before the house is raided, he is able to grab all of his manuscripts, the few pages that are actually being printed or have been printed, the book of Matthew, and they escape just before the house is ransacked and Peter Quintel is hauled off to uh, the authorities. And why it's called the Matthew fragment, as you can see, the printer gets to Matthew chapter 22 verse 12, and that's as far as they get. Again, Tyndale is able to take the printed copies that are already done. There is only one known version in existence today in Britain of this Matthew fragment. The prologue here, you probably can't read it. It's tiny. It's weird. A little bit of a shift here. His prologue to the Gospel of Matthew is very Lutheran. If you read it, it kind of sounds like Luther. Again, Tyndale was highly influenced by Luther. We're going to have a little shift on the screen. I don't know why, but... So next, we find uh, Tyndale in Worms, Germany. So again, he flees up the Rhine, and now he's able to actually get the Bible fully printed. He finds a new printer that is uh, willing to take this on, and in 1526, this is groundbreaking, something historic. For the first time ever, the Bible is printed in English. Again, historic because... It's printed, unlike Wycliffe's version, who is handwritten, and second, it's done from the Greek, the original language of the Bible, not from Latin. As you can imagine, maybe you, you, you would not imagine this, but when it arrives on the shores of England, it's smuggled in bales of hay and straw, it sells out instantly. Once it gets through the ports of London and it gets uh, into the, just the, the, the countryside, it's devoured Sold instantly, and it is being read by the plowboy, just as Tyndale desired. Now, always on the move. Uh, Well, first, let me say one thing. In his epilogue to the 1526 version, Tyndale writes, I know there's issues. I know this is not completely done. He understands there's work to be improved upon in, in his translation. A translator's work is never complete. Always translating. That's why there's so many editions and revisions of Bibles and books. So he acknowledges this in the epilogue. So from here, um, he continues hiding, and and we believe he begins to study Hebrew. He's completed the New Testament. Now he wants to tackle Hebrew. He wants to translate the Old Testament. So he has to learn Hebrew. And we don't quite know where he went, but there's some speculation uh, of his time in Germany studying under... uh, a Jewish rabbi. Now, what's, what's really amazing, again, he is a scholar. Back in England, nobody speaks Hebrew. Even in Cambridge, there's like one professor that may know a little bit about Hebrew. Most people don't even know Hebrew. Whew. All right, we still got everything? Okay. Most people don't even know that Hebrew is a language. The few that even know it's a language have no clue it's associated with the Bible. So Tyndale spends five years learning Hebrew, and he becomes a master Hebrew. Now sometime during 1526 to 1529, he completes his translation of the first five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So he completes the Pentateuch, and he's able to get it printed in 1530. No, Another historic event. This, for the first time ever in the history of the world, was something printed from, translated, and printed from Hebrew into English. Again, in England, no one even knew what Hebrew was. So here we have the first five books of Moses printed in English, translated from the original Hebrew. This will show you the genius of who Tyndale was, along with him being the prophet of the English language. He invents and coins words that we still use here today in our church service and all throughout English-speaking countries. Jehovah, this is a word coined by William Tyndale to describe Yahweh in English. Passover, scapegoat, showbread, mercy seat. Now, the word atonement had already been in use by a few people, The common Englishman and woman would have never really used this word or probably understood what it meant, but Tyndale stumbles upon it as he's studying and translating. Probably would have been uh, pronounced something like at one mint," at one mint." It means that God is at one with man. And so he uh, installs this word into his translation, at-one-ment. There are many common phrases in the Hebrew that have persisted throughout time that we all know. The Lord bless you and keep you. Let there be light, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was God. Uh, I, let me say, in the beginning was God. I, how does it go? <laughs> in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. I was thinking of first or John 1. So Tyndale translated those words for the very first time in English. If you look up Wycliffe's version, it doesn't sound anything like that. In the beginning God created heaven and earth. Tyndale realized here I have a small quote. This was interesting that the properties of the Hebrew tongue agreeeth a thousand more times with the English than with the Latin. All right, almost a decade after Tyndale first translates the New Testament in 1525, it's printed in 1526. Almost a decade later, his Greek is razor sharp. He's a master of the Hebrew language. Tyndale now continues on to fix all those problems that he was aware of in the New Testament. And in 1534, he prints his next version, correcting 4,000 or making 4,000 changes from his original New Testament. Now, this version sells out again within one month. So, right away, they begin printing uh, another version. And in 1535, the third edition is now printed and sent out. It's a small pocket-sized book, easy to contain and conceal easy for the average person to have, and now what happens is the farmer, the carpenter, the average Englishman and woman is able to read the Bible for the first time in their own language. And this 1534 edition really kind of sets the stage for all future translations in English. If we have time... We may be able to talk about some of the uh, English Bibles that follow Tyndale. But the 1534, this work, it's a masterpiece. And so all future Bibles that follow, that are in English, really take what Tyndale did from this 1534 translation. A couple other phrases so we can appreciate William Tyndale. Seek and ye shall find. Ask, and it shall be given you. Judge not that ye be not judged. Tyndale understood rhythm. He understood language well. He understood the cadence needed in language. And he really is, again, the father of modern English. He was born at the time when Middle English was being uh, moved to uh, modern English. And he is really behind this movement. If you notice in these translations, he is known to take most, let me say it this way, he uses monosyllables. Most of his words are one-syllable words. When he introduces polysyllables, they're typically at the end of a sentence. So it's very easy on the tongue. It's very easy to speak and to read the signs of the times. He went out and wept bitterly a more modern version of this language, says cried hard. <laughs> this doesn't cut it. Wept bitterly. There's something about it. My favorite from John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Listen to the Good News Bible. Do not be worried or upset. No, it's not the same. Tyndale understood in his translation when Jesus was speaking about him uh, leaving and he was talking with the disciples, he understood there's sorrow in their hearts. He understood that. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's beautiful. I'm gonna pause for a minute. Questions. Any questions? I know I covered a lot. There still is a lot to cover, so I'll take a pause. Yeah, Terry. Yeah, great question. I do have that in my notes somewhere. Five, six thousand, and they were they were in different amounts, different uh, you know amounts for each version. Yeah. We're not talking, you know, like 50,000 because it's still printing there. He's immovable type print. you still had to move everything, and it was quite the process, but they were able to still print in the thousands. Great question. Yeah, Carson. Yeah, excellent question. That actually goes in here to the enemy part, but two ways. One is he had people that financed him, English merchants, again, because, uh, Printing books is a business. You make money when you print books. So he had some of the, uh, the English merchants were very, very instrumental in helping Tyndale get the books over. So he had different people that were sympathetic to the Protestant cause that would help finance him. Yeah, great question. And, and, and I'll wait for one or two more and we'll come back because that actually falls into his enemies. Yes. Yeah the The printers often, yep. They would do the print, but then, like in with Catholic Bibles, I know often monks would then they take them to a monastery and then the monks would do all of the the beautiful artwork. Uh, but here, monks wouldn't have been doing that for Tyndale's Bible, so it would have been either the printer or others, others that he would have known. Okay, yeah, Steve. Oh, great question. Yeah, and I can say that now because we may not have time to get to the KJV, which is at the end of this. Most believe 83% of the New Testament in the King James is Tyndale. 83%. And about 76% of the Old Testament that he translated would be Tyndale. So, yeah, the Old Testament, the first five books... Uh, the Pentateuch. He translated Jonah in 1531, or had it published in 1531 and printed, and th- and then from after Jonah, I, no one really knows why. Many thought uh, maybe Tyndale thought of himself like the prophet Jonah, not so much that uh, he fled, but that he was a prophet in the midst of a country that hated him. That was wicked, but he also. We mo- most people believe, or scholars think, that he translated then Joshua through Second Chronicles, the historical books. But there's no living manuscripts. But in uh, two versions after Tyndale's 1535, called the John or John Rogers compiled it, called the Matthew's Bible. When you analyze the Old Testament, it appears that those books, Second uh, Joshua through Second Chronicles, are also Tyndale's translations. Great question. Okay, he was not without enemies. He had many. King Henry VIII in 1530 uh, commanded that all English Bibles be burnt, and anyone that distributed Bibles also was to be put to death. Bishop Tunstall, we already spoke about, but Tunstall, when it comes to financing... What happened in 1526, which we'll read here, in 1526, when those Bibles, the first translation, made their way into London, and Tunstall was the bishop there, and he got wind of it, and he saw these Bibles, and he knew he told Tyndale not to translate. He preached a famous ser- sermon at St. Paul's Cathedral, where he said, I have found 2,000 errors in his New Testament, and they burned many of the books, calling them pestiferous and pernicious poison. But when he burned the books, you have to think, first off, book burning wasn't something new. But burning the Bible, that did stand out. In addition, he's burning the Bible in the language of the people. This, if anything, helped fuel the flame of the Protestant movement in England. Now, what happened here in burning those books is Tunstall hatched a plan that really benefited Tyndale. He wanted to buy up all the books. Let's buy up all those New Testaments so we can burn them. But when you buy them, you're paying someone money, and that money went back to Tyndale, which helped Tyndale then in his work in translating future editions and getting them printed. Oh, because of time, we're going to have to skip some of these other guys, uh, Cardinal Woolsey and Bishop Stokesley. Bishop Stokesley, just to point out, uh, he took over from Tunstall's, the Bishop of London, and he actually is like the chief persecutor of the Protestants at this time. He is known to put more people to death than William Tyndale's best known enemy, who is next, Sir Thomas More. I don't know why that does that. I'm going to do this really quick. See if that uh... eh, didn't fix it. So, Sir Thomas More, who has heard of Sir Thomas More? Most of you, some of you. Also known by the Roman Catholics as St. Thomas More which I don't typically repeat because I don't think of him as a saint. He is known uh, as the chief enemy of William Tyndale. Now, Sir Thomas More is a respectable man in one sense. He was a a devout Roman Catholic. He was a scholar. He was uh, a judge, a lawyer. He was even a sheriff at one point. And Sir Thomas More caught the attention of King Henry VIII. Many of you know King Henry VIII wrote uh, a book on defending the seven sacraments, and the king gave King, uh, excuse me, the Pope gave King Henry VIII the title Defender of the Faith. Well, Sir Thomas More had a hand in this. So, 1529, Bishop Tunstall employs More to go after Tyndale. He's hired to go after him and to write polemics against Tyndale, to defame him, to find issues in his translations and his other works. Tyndale uh, actually wrote uh, numerous other books. Now, Sir Thomas More, here's some quotes for you. He ended up persecuting many uh, other Protestants. One man that was converted by reading Tyndale's book called The Parable of the Wicked Mammon. Um, he was whipped in Thomas More's garden. He had his brows squeezed with ropes until blood came out of his eyes. He was sent to the tower. He was racked until he was lame. He was tortured. Eventually, he was burnt where Thomas More was known to have said that he rejoiced that his victim was now in hell where Tyndale is like to find him when they both come together. uh, So More was not a great man in this regard. He was a devout Roman Catholic. Here are some things he said about Tyndale. He labeled him the captain of English heretics, a hellhound in the kennel of devils, a new Judas, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, an idolater, a devil worshiper, and a beast out of whose brutish, beastly mouth cometh a filthy foam. You gotta love the polemics of these guys. He wrote nine books attacking Tyndale and a thousand words devoted to finding heresy and issues with many of his different books as well. Now, Sir Thomas More met his own fate because of his devotion to his religion, he was a devout Roman Catholic, and because he was, he refused to acknowledge the act of supremacy. Anyone know what the act of supremacy is i know i knew I knew Brian knew it, yes, sir Yes, exactly it. well said, so. More had issue with that. More was uh, Lord Chancellor over all of England at this point. But he refused to acknowledge King Henry VIII as supreme over the church because he was devoted to papal authority. And because he refused to embrace that, and because he also did not embrace the, marriage to Aunt, the divorce of Catherine and the marriage to Anne Boleyn, King Henry had him beheaded. He was found guilty before Parliament of treason, and then he himself was beheaded. Now, his persecution of Tyndale really boils down to the uh, translation of five Greek words. These five words. Tyndale translated presbyteros as, sen- as senior first, and then in the 1534 edition as elder instead of priest. This took away the power from the clergy. Next, ecclesia He translated it as congregation instead of church. This took away the power from the state authority. Metanoeo, he translated as repent instead of do penance. Eximo logeo, translated as acknowledge or admit instead of confess. Also agape, Tyndale translated as love rather than charity. Because charity had become known uh, as basically works um, of legalism see here or acts of legalism things like indulgences so these five words really are at the heart of why sir thomas More persecuted uh, tyndale somebody help me on time i thought there used to be a clock up there and i can't see am i okay i gotta go quickly on this one there was a period when king henry VIII was favorable to william tyndale um, as we know, Anne Boleyn, he came in contact with one of his writings, Tyndale's writings, called The Obedience of a Christian Man. The Obedience of a Christian Man was a book that Tyndale wrote. And so King Henry VIII got a copy of this. And in this book, Tyndale says we should be obedient to the king. He's the, the, the sovereign over the, the land. Most people actually think this is what moved King Henry VIII to, uh, to enact the, uh, his act of supremacy. So King Henry VIII was very fond of this book. He said, it's, it's a book for me and all kings to read. So Thomas Cromwell, he's prime minister of England. He is also sympathetic to the Reformation, the Protestant movement. He seizes this opportunity. He hires a man named Stephen Vaughan, who is an English merchant, to go track Tyndale down. Now Tyndale's hard to find. He's living, always moving around. And he eventually finds him. And he says, the king will grant you safe passage if you come back to be part of the royal court. But Tyndale is wary. He knows what happens to heretics. So he says, I will come back under one condition. And I don't have time to read his letter with this guy Vaughn. It's beautiful. He basically says, I will come back. I will give my life gladly to the king. I will be put to death. I am fine to be put to death if and only if the king allows the Bible to be printed in English so that everyone can read it. To which King Henry said no. But when he writes, Stephen Vaughan writes King Henry, that's what he says I found Tyndale, and I, he is always singing one note the Bible in English. This brings us to his martyrdom in 1536. Tyndale was always hunted across Europe, again, predominantly by the man Bishop Stokesley by this point who took over for Bishop Tunstall. Now, the man, uh, a despicable man by the name of Henry Phillips is the reason Tyndale was caught. Henry Phillips was born to a wealthy family north of London. His father is wealthy. He gives uh, this guy Phillips a large sum of money to take to London to pay somebody. And on the way, he blows it on booze and gambling. He's broke, squandered his father's money. So, he needs to hatch a plan to get the money back. And we don't know for sure. Most think it's Stokesley, Bishop Stokesley, that secretly says, I'll give you a large sum of money if you go and find Tyndale. And that's what Henry Phillips does. He goes in the spring of 1535. He arrives in Antwerp where he's living in the Netherlands, today Belgium. He finds the English merchants and he befriends them through his cunning acts. And when he befriends them, because they're friends with Tyndale and Tyndale is associated with the English merchants in Antwerp, he eventually finds Tyndale. And he befriends Tyndale. Now Tyndale was living in the house of a man named Thomas Points. And Thomas had some questions about this guy, Phillips, and he warned Tyndale. But Tyndale was guileless, just a good guy. And he said, no, he's handsome, he's charming, he's okay. He was not okay. So what happened is when Phillips eventually realized the situation, he knew where Tyndale was, he goes and he gets two officers. And he comes over to Tyndale's house and he invites him out to eat dinner and he has these officers waiting to capture Tyndale. And listen, before, this is why the man is despicable in my mind. Before they leave, he lies at Tyndale and he says, I lost my purse. I've lost all my money. Just to get money from Tyndale before he betrays him. Tyndale is known to give him about two pounds, which would have fed a poor family for a month at this time in Europe. So they, they start to walk down the windy roads in Antwerp. And then as they come under a pass, kind of like an arch, he lets Tyndale go first, knowing that he has two guards waiting. So as Tyndale walks through the archway, the two guards jump out. Tyndale's stunned, not understanding what is about to happen. And then Phillips points, this is him, and gives him a uh, shoves them in, or him in. At this time, Tyndale is captured and he is arrested because of a betrayer like Judas who betrayed our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This man betrayed, betrayed him. It brings me to tears when I think about it. It's a sad story. Now, he's taken to the Villevorde Castle, which is not far out uh, from Brussels, and for 18 months, Tyndale suffers. 18 months in a dark and dank prison. Now, we know here, uh, his last letter, he describes a bit of the condition. Tyndale writes in 1535, I suffer greatly from cold in the head. I'm afflicted by a perpetual discharge, which is much increase in this cell. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He requested in a letter that he get a lamp in the evening. He said, it is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark, But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary. Permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, my Hebrew grammar, and my Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in my study. Even at the end of his life, he was committed to finishing the translation of the Hebrew. Sadly, he was not allowed those things. So, I've often thought as I've studied Tyndale, could could you imagine what the Psalms would be like if Tyndale translated them, because of the beauty in what he did for the English language. But we'll never know. So, in uh, after 18 months, Tyndale is let out of the castle, and his trial begins. And Tyndale is found guilty on numerous charges of heresy. I will read you a couple. First, he was found guilty because he maintained that faith alone justifies. Second, He was found guilty because he believed in the forgiveness of sins and that that he embraced the mercy offered in the gospel and that that was enough for salvation. He denied purgatory. He denied that the saints or the Virgin Mary are actually praying for, for us. So in 1536, he was condemned as a heretic, punishable by burning. Now, he went back to prison for about two months Uh, But prior to that, after he was found guilty, he was defrocked of the priesthood where he would have knelt, been dressed in in priestly garments because he was a priest at one point. His hands would have been scraped with glass signifying the anointing of the priesthood has been removed. The mass would have been put in his hands and quickly taken away. He would have been stripped and put in layman's clothes. And he was taken back to prison. And then in October of 1536, early in the morning, he was led out to be burnt. Burnt. And as he was led, he was, as you can see in the picture here, he was strapped to the pole. Uh, A noose was put around his neck, and he was asked, would you repent or would you um, confess? What's the word? Recant. Thank you. To which he said his famous last words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes, meaning let the king allow the Bible to be in English. To which at that point he was strangled to death first and then burnt. That is how he met his fate. Tyndale wrote, I'm paraphrasing once in my research, he knew that God sovereignly allowed him to be an enemy of many. Sometimes God allows us um, to have difficulty in life, but he's a man who really is a man of courage and faith, right, in times of difficulty. He was solely focused to this work that the people of his country would be able to know the Scriptures in English. So he met his fate. Uh, Again, I'm sorry, time? I don't... Where are we at? Someone help me. Okay, in a few more minutes. So a couple quick Bibles that followed Tyndale, the Coverdale Bible, Miles Coverdale. You may have heard his name. He actually helped Tyndale earlier with some of his translation work. So in 1535, when Tyndale's in prison, Miles Coverdale basically edits and assembles Tyndale's work in the New Testament and the Hebrew, and then he finishes the other books of the Old Testament, but not from Hebrew Coverdale doesn't know Hebrew, so he uses the Latin and he uses Luther's German. But he does complete the first ever Bible printed in English. So now the Bible is out. But it doesn't yet, uh, it doesn't have approval by the king. I mentioned the Matthews Bible a man by the name of John Rogers, who was also a friend of Tyndale and a co-worker. In 1537, he basically takes, he's an editor, he's not doing translation work, he takes Tyndale's work and some of Coverdale's work, and he puts together the Thomas Matthew Bible. It's a pseudonym, because no one wants to be associated with translating the Bible in English, but it's basically Tyndale. Tyndale's initials are in the Old Testament, and so, the Matthew's Bible now actually gets a license. It is set forth with the king's most gracious license. So, now the English Bible is licensed. The Matthew's Bible. And really, the Matthew's Bible sets the stage for all future English versions. Again, mostly Tyndale. Now, the Great Bible... 1539, three years after Tyndale uttered, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. His prayer is answered. Things have changed. King Henry VIII authorizes this Bible. Thomas Cromwell, who we've already talked about, was instrumental behind this move to get the Bible authorized. And so now it is actually installed in every English church throughout England, and it is chained because so many people want to read it, it's easy to be stolen. And so many people are reading the Bible that they're reading it out loud in church, and they're not listening to the the priest. So King Henry VIII in 1539 has to issue a proclamation that the Bible can no longer be read aloud in church. This is the great Bible. His vision, Tyndale, finally has come to life the English Bible is in the hands of England. If you notice this is this picture here, this is on the picture of the Great Bible. There sits King Henry VIII right in the center disseminating the Bible to Cramner and Cromwell on his left and right. Uh, and then you can see the Bible filtering down to kind of the layperson. But if you notice right up top, little tiny Jesus. <laughs> King Henry VIII is big in the center and there's Jesus just kind of looking down making sure everything's okay. Tells you a little bit about King Henry VIII. Uh, we don't have time for the Geneva Bible, though that is, oh, in itself, a full story. Lastly, the King James. And as you asked, Steve, here, about 100 years later, 50-some uh, translators come together, Anglicans and the Reformed, uh, and they come together and they put together the King James Bible. And guess what? They're unable to really improve that much on Tyndale. 83% New Testament and 76% of the Old Testament. So today, we'll, we'll end with some questions. Today, there's over 100 modern translations in English. They all stand on the backs of William Tyndale. So when you read the Bible just leave you with this, and then we'll, if you have a question or two, we can end there. When you read the Bible, first off, I'd encourage you, go look up many of the phrases uh, that I didn't have a chance to get to that are really from Tyndale, the first ever translated into English. Go look those up. Uh, they're beautiful. And then as you continue to read the Bible on a regular basis, you'll, you'll be able to remember these came first into our language because of this great man, William Tyndale. Uh, these are some books and resources that really help me. Uh, if you're really interested, I would recommend this book, The Daring Mission of William Tyndale by Dr. Stephen Lawson. It's fantastic. It's super easy to read, and it's really faith-building. With that, I think we have time for a couple questions. Any, any questions? Thank you for all listening. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Mark. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, so the romantic version is yes. The actual probably is no. Though they definitely, like, for sure, they knew of each other. Um, but it's it's unlikely that they met. There is there is this story where there's, like, a name that's kind of almost like the name Tyndale written in the, the church log at Wittenberg. But most credible, like, David Daniel, uh, his biography, like, Most current biographers don't believe that story to be true, so probably not. Other questions? Yes. Wow, such a good question. I have actually pondered that thought quite a bit. Like half of me thinks this guy is such an evil, wicked guy. Then on the other side, I think, well, you know, he, he, he was a devout Catholic, and he was being true to his, his faith, but nonetheless, it's a false faith. So in one sense, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I, I don't know that I can give you an honest answer. Brian may have. I, I, I definitely respect Sir Thomas more in one sense, but at the other hand, he persecuted Protestants. Yeah, so Brian, you're going to say something? Yes. So in sense we also give ourselves a in the sense that Yeah. Excellent comment, thank you. It's a humble comment. One last question and we'll be done. Anyone else? Yeah, Brian. It's a good question. Great questions. There's a lot. The one thing overall is just in, face, in the face of persecution, to have resolve and just trust in God trust in the Lord with all of our lives. Like that, That's super encouraging to me, that Tyndale, he was a refugee. I think of today the, the Ukrainians that are fleeing their country, maybe never to set foot again, who knows. Tyndale left, but he was so committed to the glory of God. That's why I'm wearing my Soli De Gloria shirt today. He's so committed to the glory of God that he was willing to face death, death, so that God's word could be read among his people and that men and women could know Jesus Christ. And that, that's just faith building beyond anything to me. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of my takeaway. Here is a man who exemplifies faith and courage for the gospel. And we, we seem to continually be entering a time period where it's more challenging for Christians. So this is, this, the story, the life of William Tyndale gives me strength. All right, everybody, let's pray and we'll end. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time. We thank you for heroes of the faith like Tyndale who have gone before. I pray, Lord, that his story, his life would encourage us all and that we would be strengthened in faith to face persecution if it comes and be inspired to read the words of the Bible, God's word. And we thank you for this and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.